Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Voices in Hyperspace, uh, Legendary Black Lion. I'm Mela Sarlo. Hey, this is Sunday. Now, we are, we've gone a couple of weeks without Nita, and rest assured, she's been keeping up for the most part with us. We didn't get to watch this episode with Nita, but I plan on doing a friend date with her so we can get her caught up. Uh, I do feel that this episode is going to frustrate her. This is Babylon 5, Season 1, Episode 11, By Any Means Necessary. And it is something that... Uh, well, there's there's a lot of... There's a lot of thoughts about this episode. I was looking at some of the online response to this. A lot of Babylon 5 fans like this episode, but they see it as a filler episode. Oh. Um, yeah, I know. I, I thought that was very interesting. To me, this is like... This is one of the best season one episodes. I think Believers got us to feel some real gravity and just, you know, it, it got us to feel how deep J. Michael Straczynski just dislikes religious fundamentalism, which, okay, you have to think about that time period that he was uh, writing and shooting all this. Early 90s, the United States was uh, having a cultural shift. There was uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, the rise of like the rise and like total takeover of neoliberalism and conservative politics were pretty much in control of everything. Anyway, what are your thoughts on this episode, Mel? It reminds me a lot of work for some reason. So, Gee, I wonder know, why. Lives are at stake and um, it's not as like... Well, I guess if you consider some circumstances, yeah, yeah, lives are at stake. And if we don't have the resources that we need to do our job properly, it can affect everybody. And, but the people on top, they, they're not concerned about it. They, they, from their perspective, we have what we need to do our jobs. But then the job keeps getting like more um, demanding without more resources. And we're still supposed to be able to do our job efficiently. And it gets dumbed down. There's days where um, a lot of us just feel like babysitters. Like it, the, 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 <laughs> We're primarily considering safety over education on some days. Yeah. Where um, like most of the education is to be safe. <laughs> yeah. It's like you can't do your actual job because of you're being doubled up on, double and tripled up on duties, right? It's, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to achieve your your goals and uh yeah in education i can imagine that is that is a that is a very stressful task and um yeah. and can- with the the side story respecting people's uh, cultures and and giving them the opportunity to do those things like um for the last two years not two years three years they added um a jewish and a hindu holiday to our schedule and I actually had a coworker at one point was mad that they added a Jewish holiday. And I'm like, but we get a day off. I don't care who's holiday. <laughs> it ain't hurting me. That's wild. So did they voice why they were angry? No, they just had an attitude when they said, oh, it's this holiday that we get off. We're only getting off because it's this holiday. And I don't want to say it wrong because I know I've been saying it wrong. But uh, I looked up the holiday and it's like, 
it was very unfair for us to go to school on that day because they can't use technology. They're supposed to meditate. Like, uh, you can't do any of that at school. And there were a lot of staff and teachers that were taking off that day in order to observe it. Um, so it it sounds fair to me that we should have that day off. And if you're not Jewish, take a mental health day. Right. right. <laughs> like it's a day during the week you could go shopping in the middle of the day where there's no crowds, you know? That's a, I, I like that. That's some good, that's a good uh, positive spin. Yeah. If you're not celebrating the holiday, take it as a mental health day. Right. <laughs> Which kind of helps me reframe some things in my mind. Uh, Sunday and Nita have been organizing this uh, event called, what did you call it? Sunday? Fighting with Friendsgiving. Say that again. Fighting with Friendsgiving. Yes, sir. Okay. And can what's, what's like, can you explain the it premise? to me? Yeah. Absolutely. Fighting with Friendsgiving is uh, a spin on the, <laughs> one of my favorite holidays before I truly had an understanding of like the, the back story of Thanksgiving and with whoever a person is who has a problem with anyone else having their day celebrated I'd be very curious to know like what days they're celebrating and if they really understand the historical background um, to a day that you're maybe buying gifts for someone or slaughtering turkeys over it and and all of those kinds of things but (laughs) instead of like throwing Thanksgiving out with the bathwater, <clears throat> which a lot I, of people I typically would be out for. You know, be I would out for that because, yeah, folks, um, research the history of Thanksgiving. You are not celebrating peace at all, mm-hmm. exactly, or friendship, or or giving thanks, or anything like that. No. But once I did, you know, learn that because it was such a largely celebrated holiday in my family. I would try to just like, you know, tell myself that, that, you know, I'm just going to be thankful for my family and I am just going to hang out with them and all those things. And then you have people who will do Friendsgiving and, you know, not everybody has family to spend time with. So they'll take that time to just like the people that they choose to be their friends and family to get together and love on each other. But me and my friends, we like to fight. And so we have decided <laughs> yeah. uh, to try to get together people who have um, strong opinions about certain um, topics that are also well-educated in these topics to have discussions over. We definitely want it to be um, an organized fashion of fight. Uh, and you can't just like be randomly throwing your opinions around. Um, Nita is very strict when it comes to the way that she facilitates conversations, debates and or fights. And so she is going to um, orchestrate it in a way to where we'll be able to be having dinner um, and at the same time having this conversation. And we might be talking about religion at one moment or we might be going into politics or we might uh, end up discussing human rights, animal rights. There's nothing's off the table. And I'm really excited to get an opportunity to do it because I do miss the platforms that allow for the verbal um, communication because I am not a Twitter warrior. A verbal abuse. <laughs> yeah. that's, what, that's what she misses. She misses verbally abusing people online. 
I think a good way to look at this, because there's there's some there's some meat on this episode, right? So Jakar is kind of like the secondary story here. And this is an interesting like development. Basically, okay, from the beginning, of course, the uh, the dock workers at Babylon 5, they're being overworked. Uh, they're, they're overworked, understaffed, and then their load, their, uh, the load of ships that are coming in is beyond their capacity. So they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, keep up with the demands. And then you have the command staff who, yeah, okay, they're frustrated too, but they don't have their hands deep in it. They're not actually like on the dock working and trying to make sure everyone's organized. So you have to remember Babylon 5 is a military what a military facility, a military outpost uh, mm-hmm. is funded with military money, has military commanders, and they are pretty much beholden to the the diplomats and whatever uh, Earth Force says. So keep all that in mind. So we got a, a Narn ship that is, you know, very impatiently trying to get docked. He has an item for Ambassador Jakar. It's a it's a perishable plant called the Jaquan. And so Ivanova is like, okay, you know what? We can get you ahead. Just, uh, just wait a second. You know, he's being impatient. She's like, okay, you're, you're able to go. What is, what she's doing, she's moving multiple crafts at the same time. And there's a proximity alarm that there's going to be a crash. The Narn ship, the, the captain freaks out and she's like, nope, don't. Don't turn on your engines. Keep, you know, follow the course. Everything's going to be fine. He's like, nope, screw that. He turns his engines on, runs right into uh, the dock, blows up. Then the other ship, uh, what what happens to the other ship? He kind of get knocked over. One, one of the ships get, like, chopped in half. And because of that, there's there's an emergency. There's a fire on the dock. Some guys die. And it goes crazy. Now, we'll come back, we'll come back to the dock workers in a moment. But... What the situation with Jakar, he 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 was waiting for this flower because it was for like a, a religious ceremony. And so he's very agitated because now he's like, I can't do the ceremony because uh, the flower's gone. And he's trying to scramble to figure out like, okay, how can I get a replacement? I kind of like the dynamic between him and the Toth. And I think this actually shows a lot more thought or um, a lot more development for the aliens on this show than we've seen in past sci-fi shows. The Narn have multiple religions and mm-hmm. we don't see that a lot with, uh, with sci-fi shows that, that depict like religious aliens. Right. We only see the, the religion of the ones or the whole planet isn't on one somehow. <laughs> right. They, they, they either have the same, they all have the same religion or if they if there is a difference, it's like they all have the same religion and some of them don't believe, but it's like monotheistic or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh but Natoth and Jakar, they're having that conversation. So Jakar is a follower of Jaquan, and Natoth is not. And I think in past episodes, like she's part of like what an assassin's guild or something like that. And uh she's a whole warrior. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's a warrior and they, you know, they have like blood oaths and 
all of that stuff. So she's taking a different path. Which, how do y'all feel about like Jakar's like devotion to his religion? Like that that again shows more depth to his character. Like, would you have guessed that he was religious in the first half of this season? Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yes, because the the most religious people be the ones. Sorry, religious people. No, nope. <laughs> speak your truth. Speak your truth. They be needed it because they in the casinos and in the strip clubs and doing all the things that they you know wagging their finger at everybody else for doing, and they feel you know they have some kind of guilt behind the lives that they lead and so they need their religion to absolve them um mm. for their mortal failings so and i kind of get oh. go, go ahead go ahead go ahead Mel. i kind of get a sense of um nationalism from him even though it's not a religion of everyone um that's his connection to his planet that he is so fond of speaking up for i i kind of agree with that because like like you, like Sunday said, if there's guilt, you have to think about the Narn had been colonized and um, under a system of apartheid to the to the Centauri, mm-hmm. and so they they are essentially, even though they do have their freedom, they are a defeated culture, right? Okay. And that can affect people in so many different ways. And Jakar is kind of experiencing that trauma, or he's displaying mm-hmm. that trauma. He he does spend his time in the casino. He does spend his time uh, messing around with Earth women, you know. Um, and the top. Oh, who was the first? Who was his first uh, assistant? I can't remember her name. I apologize. I don't remember either. But um, but she was like disgusted that he was he was with Earth women, <laughs> and it makes me wonder. Like, is she? You know, is this her? observing him and being like okay yeah you can't be that devoted to Jaquan you filthy bastard <laughs> yeah it kind of reminds me of like when people mention oh I heard someone earlier this week talk about the uh, Yoruba religion and how the only time they've ever heard people talk about it is always like the light-skinned people who always seem like they're trying to prove how black they are oh, and wow. Wow. it's like he's so devoted because he has to prove how Narn he is uh, to say that he's not defeated because he has to live in this world where he has to know to communicate with the the people who are basically the enemy. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and also a way to ground him and connect him to the culture because, you know, he's sitting up there in a the space station. His whole mm-hmm. his whole goal for this episode was he wanted to try to perform the ceremony at a certain time, which was uh, when the when the sun from that day, what touched a mountain, or something like yeah. that, um, There's a certain mountain, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and okay, yeah, you know, religious observance, but he was very he was very agitated about it, and the way that he went about to correct it was to attempt to bribe, to defraud, to to steal, you know, <laughs> and. You know, I don't know what Narn ethics are like, but it seemed like that was a okay with uh with some of them, some of those folks. And his foil was our our friend Lando Malari, who is in complete douchebag mode this episode. <laughs> what was it? Natoff found out that 
She goes, there is exactly one being on this station that has a Jaquan Eth. And he goes, oh, great. Let's go find him. He goes, wait. And he turns around to look. There's Londo in the elevator going, yoo-hoo, waving at him to leave because he's taunting him. And what we find out mm-hmm. is like he knows for a fact that Jakar really wants this flower. Now, you have two ambassadors, two diplomats from cultures that are in conflict. There is an opportunity for like there's there's a diplomatic opportunity to bring these two cultures closer together. And what is Malari's choice? He's like, nah, I don't want him to have I you know I don't want him to have it because he really wants it. So he, he well, just in alignment with um his cultural background. Uh if I'm not mistaken, they're the ones that have all the secrets in their families and do everything that they can to set themselves apart to, you know, make their families special and like be holding something over the other families, right? Yeah. Sounds just be superior, right. especially he him wanting to be superior over, oh, over Jakar, Jakar. and because I yeah, know, they really, they really detest the Narn. They they are some jerks <laughs> for no reason. It's like, but we own them. We we conquered them, yeah. and we hate you because we're not conquering over you anymore. It's like mm. sounds familiar, right? That's some playground stuff in real life and in history and from teaching preschool, like. Yeah. It's that immature, even though it's very much an adult thing. Yeah. And all of Sinclair's attempts to try to bring them together just just fail. He even like Sinclair's like, why don't we just pay you double what it's worth? Like, can you just give them the daggone flower? (laughs) Right. And I don't think that it is uh, like to do with age, because like you mentioned, you see it happen with children. And it clearly happens with adults. Uh, It is whether the individuals in question are operating from a place of their ego um, or their higher self. I'm learning Mm -hmm. about that um, in a book that I'm reading. And it's making so much sense because when you're trying to set yourself apart and trying to be special, you're just stepping over any and everything to to accomplish that goal. And it is hurting everyone and everything around you, including yourself. But if we can get to a higher consciousness and state of thought, then bringing ourselves together, you know, with our environment and each other, then there can be peace. Yeah, it just be really hard to get everybody on one accord with that. Right. And it's like when people, what I was learning about anarchy is that supposedly when people have their needs taken care of, they don't have to be mean to others in order to provide for themselves or to you don't have to yeah. take from people. <laughs> right. Because like it, even though we see we see it as a childish thing, it's very common for children to want to be sharing, to want to be caring and loving on each other. I've I've had plenty of dog piles in my class because they all just wanted to hug each other because somebody was sad. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And the concept of cooperation is always dismissed because of the other things. Uh, self-interest, individualism, profit, status, all of those things that tend to relate towards ego. You know, people are like, you know what? Let's not make a better place for everyone. Let's make it better for me and screw the rest of y'all. 
and I know, and there are people who are going to hear this be like, yeah, but that's the way it is. And it's that way because you do it on purpose. Like, yeah, you have, you have a choice. Uh, now, the uh, the A story is the um, the dock workers are striking. This accident was just the culmination of the conditions of their workplace and the work overload on Babylon 5. We typically see the the um we see Babylon 5 from the perspective of the military from uh the command staff. And you know, we are we're we're learning about the trauma they've all dealt with fighting through the war, them trying to cope with their jobs day to day, watching people die, people get shot, getting kidnapped. Mind controlled, repeatedly putting themselves in danger because of uh, PTSD. Garibaldi <laughs> being an annoying cop, uh, which man, he becomes super annoying in this episode. <laughs> but the dock workers, they're like, they're they're having a meeting, and they're like, you know, we're we're tired of this. People are dying, and they're they're expect you know they're expecting us to bust our butts, but they're not giving us breaks. We're doing double shifts. We don't get to sleep. We're not get we the pay is lousy, you know all of that stuff. Um, this all sounds very familiar because there are several uh, there have been several um, sh- strikes even recently, several strikes recently mm-hmm. that sound very similar to this. You know, um, they just wrapped up the writer strike, which okay, awesome. Now the actors have to figure out their their deal, right? Um, was it last year or was it earlier this year the Amtrak strike that? The president and Congress decided, like, oh, we're going to bust it because the 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 economy is going to hurt if they can if they get what they want. And it's like mm-hmm. that's wild that you have a tool to bargain for better work conditions, and then your government is like, nah, we're not going to allow you to do that. Get back to work. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's frustrating. Um, and then there is another. This reminded me specifically of a strike um, from the past. This is the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization strike. Um, this goes back to 1981. This is uh, the the air traffic controllers were <clears throat> trying to get lighter work days, better pay, better benefits. And what ends up happening in a lot of these cases, they get the, like the money is always thrown on the table, but it's like you get the money, but we should, we should, the, the companies always want to have the option of like overworking, overworking you, denying mm-hmm. you paid sick time off, you know, things like that. And so the, the, the air traffic controllers, they, they rejected it. They went on strike. This went all the way to president Ronald Reagan, the Gipper himself. And he basically said, Nope, what you're doing is illegal. Um, if you're not back to work in 48 hours, you will, you will all be forfeiting your jobs. Mind you, this this union represented, let me think, I think 15,000 15, workers and they fired 1,100 of 11,000 of them. No, oh, wow. hold on, let me make sure. Oh, okay. They, it, they, they, uh, they represented over 2,000 and they fired 11,000. And that's just how they did it. It was, it was there was no bargaining to like improve work conditions, all that stuff. They were just like, well, 
since we can't get a contract, screw it. We're going to use brute force. And you have like, not only are you not going back to work, but we're going to hire some scabs to come in. And then uh, the conditions are not going to change for anyone else. In this episode, they were threatening to use the rush act, which sounds very similar to what happened. And that is uh, the earth force Congress or earth force Senate gives the uh, commanding authority in, you know, wherever um, the right to end any, any strikes by any means necessary. And so uh, in the Babylon lore, which this is very interesting. So it's a law that originated but due to the Earth Membari War. So if there were any labor disputes during wartime, they would enact the Rush Act and they would just put down these strikes and they would do it by force. And um, they, in, in, in the lore, this happened to a minor strike on Europa, which is a moon. I think that's over uh, Neptune. It's the planet closest to... Oh, wait. Yeah. Is it, a, is it, a, is it a moon of Neptune or... Saturn. I can't remember. No, it's not. It's Saturn. Saturn. Okay. And uh and then like it's a couple other places that it took that that uh they use the Rush Act. And usually they send a the military in to shoot a bunch of workers. Um, there is a f- I was gonna say this is a fun fact, but this is not a fun fact at all. So just is a fact. It's it is a fact. It is a is a very interesting tidbit about this. Um you have to remember this is the nineties. So According to J. Michael Straczynski, the Rush Act was named by episode writer Catherine M. Drennan after the conservative talk show host, talk radio host, and noted anti-union speaker Rush Limbaugh. So it was it was actually used as an insult. He was about to say it was yeah it was it was actually used as an insult. Like yeah this this jerk is the person is probably who they named it after. But That's also right. a lot of a lot of those right wing uh, pundits are like they they're they're anti union like they they always anti union and they always like oh well unions used to have this great use back in the day but they're useless now it's like you know what we have a greater wealth disparity now than than the time that unions were doing like their most important you know the most important and most uh, transformational work in this country. Um, we have a. I don't know that anything was ever so great like this. Make America Great Again. Uh, the Pinkertons. Hello. Yep. Like the unions was going wild back in the day. People were losing their lives back then too. Right. I'm glad you brought up the Pinkertons. So now we can start talking about Garibaldi. Whenever there is a serious labor movement, a serious labor strike, they always call the cops. And so y'all saw when uh. Garibaldi, you know, he walked in on that that uh, guild meeting, right? What what do you think Garibaldi's view of that whole situation was? Well, one, he clearly has an understanding because when they were calling it the blue flu, yeah, um, I'm imagining that is talking about the police department calling yep. in sick yep. when they're really not. And it was definitely a low blow when the union workers were saying, like, we expect you to understand where we're coming from, you know, under that gray suit that you're a blue collar worker, too. So he's probably conflicted because he more than likely agrees with the union workers. But like 
for the sake of his job and the respect of his position, he's, you know, got to toe this line. And I think that that is very evident at the end after he's the one that took the first punch, like in the fight that he's like, oh, I was just a fair fight. Um, and he ain't got no sore feelings. He doesn't expect uh, the union workers to be reprimanded for their actions of standing up for themselves. Mm-hmm. What do you I agree? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He seemed like he was very much in the middle because he does. He's, He's on the hierarchy. He's on high up on higher up on the hierarchy. He's also military, which I was slightly, slightly kind of confused about because I, my very limited understanding of military is that when they have jobs like that, it's done by military personnel. But they weren't were they they weren't technically military. It's like they had outside contractors. Right. They yeah. were the outside contractor or another company that they were hiring or hiring some other way. It like they should have been military officers that had the job of working in the docks or you know I maybe that was just part of the plot. <laughs> they need to do that for the plot. No, I think that it it's kind of established that um like while the Babylon stations are military installations, they're built by private contractors, and we also have okay. real life, and uh, we have real life precedent for that too. Like, uh, you know, the companies that build these bombers and these fighter jets, they're like Honeywell and Boeing, and you know what I mean. Those, these, these. See, my comparison would be like Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. he has he military contracts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have military contracts which they have to bid for. And then, you know, you can once you get that once you win the bid, you do the you do the work. Um, what is happening though with the dock workers because they 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 are stationed on the station. They can they don't get to leave. They they have they do have a contract, they have jobs, but their jobs are funded by the earth the earth um government. And the conversations that Sinclair was having with Senator Hiroshi, which every time Senator Hiroshi pops up, I'm like, what kind of disaster is about to happen now? Because he <laughs> he just he just lays it on real thick. And like that that actor is good because every time he pops on, I'm like, Whoa, I just feel gross. But they keep talking about how like oh, if there is an illegal strike, there are going to be consequences. We might have to invoke the Rush Act. Hiroshi doesn't, you know, he's he's a play it safe kind of guy. And so he's like, yeah, let's do any, let's do everything we can to avoid it. But Sinclair is like, well, what do you want me to do? If we can't increase our budget, how am I going to uh, break up this strike? Hiroshi's like, I'm confident you'll figure something out. And that's it. That's it. Like, <laughs> It's like, it's, I mean, it's your job. I'm pretty sure you'll come up with something. They send that other guy, what, Oren Zento. Now, this guy, uh, he's just pure grease. His whole thing, uh, his whole thing is like, he's explaining to Sinclair, like, yeah, we don't have money. We don't have a budget. But they did increase, like, the military spending budget. And that comes, that becomes important later. But he's like, no, you know, just tell them to trust us. We'll, you know, get them back to work and everything is going to be fine. They're not interested in bargaining with the workers. They're just wanting them to be quiet 
go back to work. I mean, yeah, somebody died, but get over it. We'll figure something out for you later. Now, whenever an an agent or a government official says, we'll figure something out for you later, do any of you have any confidence that they will do anything at all? No, not at all. Twiddle their fingers until it goes away. Right. So, and and the, the dock workers pretty much are like, yeah, we know. Don't like y'all y'all trying to screw us over. So they go full on strike and uh Garibaldi comes on like, oh, what is it? Zen Zento is like, okay, they're on strike. Um Sinclair, you need to go down there with your with your uh security and break this thing up. He's like, he's like, why? He's like, well, I'm gonna invoke the rush act. He's like, you can't do that. You need the Senate's approval. He's like, I'll have it in an hour. And that frustrates me too, because it makes me think of it makes me think like you know we're supposed to we're supposed to have all these worker rights we're supposed to have all of these uh protections but really when push comes to shelf when there's a ton of pressure on these corporations or on the government they're just going to go brute force and they're going to ignore all of that stuff the law really is never on your side and i think I don't, you know, I'm not sure if J. Michael Straczynski is really trying to make this point, but it's it's a very interesting thing that pops up in this episode. Um, yeah, the um the way that they even look at their military, like as if giving financial gains to the military is really benefiting the soldiers, it is not because they have all of these. What do they call it when? The military people die. Oh man, there's a word for it. Some kind of collateral damage. Uh So yeah, they don't care about the lives uh, of the workers, of the police officers, of the military personnel. It's like, I am up here in my office and I'm going to move these little pawn pieces around that is funded, you know, by the capital gains that I have. And none of it really matters because it's the fight's never going to come to my front door. The labor's not going to come to my front door. I just, you know, pay to move the risk of everything else around onto the people up under me. It kind of reminds me of a trope in sci-fi where there's a utopia that is technically a dystopia, mm-hmm. where is in this case the authority thinks that they're trying to run the type of utopia where people are okay with being in the dystopia, but the people (laughs) in the dystopia actually know, but they're in delusion thinking, well, you're supposed to think it's okay. Like we're good at doing our jobs. We're good at governing. You're supposed to like us. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I also want to remind everyone, like this is still, over the backdrop of Earth Force slowly turning fascist. Well, maybe not slowly, but there's there's a lot of things going on in the background where there's there's the attempt to put a totalitarian government, a fascist totalitarian government in power. So mm-hmm. so there's that going on. So Garibaldi and the uh security force, they go down there and I'm just Whenever I, uh, okay, when I see this in TV shows, okay, I get it. You're you're making a point because 
you know, this is where this is where the drama happens. We're gonna send the military down. Let me buy the military. We're gonna send the cops down. They're gonna be full, fully um, geared up, and they gonna have to bust some heads and and uh, do what they gotta do to do their jobs, right? In real life, Sunday was talking about the Pinkertons. Uh, this reminds me of uh, what is it? The Battle of Blair Mountain, where um, it was the coal miners. They basically gotten. They got into a, a shooting fight with the police and the Pinkertons. And it's like, well, when workers are stopping work and they've armed themselves and you show up with guns, what do you think is going to happen? Like, they're going to, mm-hmm. you think they're going to be like, oh, you got guns? Never mind. We'll go back to work. No. Yeah. They're, you're right. going to, you are going to, you're going to confront some people who are already mad and then you're going to send cops, armed cops after them. What do you think was going to happen? And how is that ever the solution for you wanting people to work? It's like, crack the whip. What mm-hmm. is this slavery? Like, mm-hmm. it's so despicable when it's such a simple answer to give the workers what they need to be safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And it go reminds ahead, me of, uh, I was, uh, I had some conversations with some older coworkers a long time ago. And they're like, whenever you mention something that was unfair about the job, they're like, at least you got one. And, oh my um, God. You, yeah. you, <laughs> or um, it was always that um, you should fear not having a job. This is better than not having one at all. So whatever they do is okay because at least you got a job. And I'm like, that that shouldn't make sense. Like <laughs> Because it doesn't. But, right. And these are the type of people who think that fear and intimidation is supposed to change people's minds. That sounds even more scary when I say that this is coming from preschool teachers. <laughs> Jeez. So, this is how they work at their jobs. So, and are, uh, luckily these people are retired now. So, are they, uh, they are, intimidating preschool kids like that? Cause yeah, that's how they do their job. They think that if the kids aren't going to listen, that if I get in their face and, and, um, you know, make them scared of me, then, which ain't hard, they're four years old, then that'll make them do what they're supposed to do. And it doesn't work in the long term. It really doesn't. I found it easier to appease to what they can do. I will compliment students on what they did do that's closest to what I need them to do. And then they're proud of that. And so they do that better. And then I can build on that. And that's how I get my kids to to act the way. It takes longer than scaring them. But scaring them technically doesn't teach them anything. They're just scared. And fight, flight, or flee is a response of the brain from fear. So they have to be scared in order to do that. And I feel like the response of, of uh, force is that fight is like, I am, I feel threatened. I am scared. So I'm going to fight now. Wow. And, and it doesn't, it's not that they're rationalizing. Some people will rationalize that because the trigger response or the, the, the trauma response from the trigger is to do that thing that you did in fight, flight, or flee because that's what you think is going to work. So if I have enough experiences or if these people have enough experiences threatening people in order to get what they want, then they're going to assume that that's the best way to get what they want. In the same way, I feel like 
complimenting and cheering the kids on is the best way to get what I want because I'm not stressed. The kids aren't stressed and we just try and get through this day. <laughs> and what's so crazy is that we have to bring it back to balance that neat, like you were saying that doing the cheering on takes you longer to get to the objective. Well, in some cases we don't have time. We have got to have this one time learning experience quickly Mm-hmm. Kids sticking their finger in outlets, walking into traffic, stuff like mm-hmm. that, right? And right. Then we have to be like flexible and able to go into my scary bag if I need to, like, really show you that, yo, going this direction is going to get you messed up. So, right. you know, be stern in that moment. But then, on the other hand, when it is not anything serious and we can take our time, let's use this encouraging, slow method. To bring the children along if we have the space to do that and when it comes to like adulting and working with adults it, it sucks real bad that the neural pathways that have been created from you might be dealing with an adult who went to a catholic school somewhere that was getting their hand popped with a ruler when they did something wrong and so mm-hmm. that is like what they understand and having to reprogram or what is it, babe, that is it deconstructing yeah. um, a belief system is yeah. a mad hard thing to do. And either, either deconstructing you, your, your belief system or a paradigm shift, which is mm-hmm. very difficult. You, you, don't, you don't just change your worldview overnight. Right? Not at all. And even when you really want to do it, like everything inside of you that um, has had all of these prior learning experiences makes it difficult for you to make those shifts. Oh man. And it's why it's, you know, so extremely challenging to be on the outside looking into these conversations. I am recognizing that now because I would get really frustrated thinking like, here's the answer to this problem. Why is it so hard to just do that thing? (laughs) It's like, you've got decades and decades of, of trauma and, you know, developed, learned styles and, and things that are just in your brain that are wired a certain way where you will really go into a state of like primal panic. If, you know, something is not going the way you want it to, or even when you try to do something that is against like a belief system that is fixed in your mind, you may want to do it and be like, this is going to be good for me. And when you go to do it, all this anxiety just floods you and can paralyze you in some instances. I hope I'm not getting off topic. Y'all. No, My I think apologies. it, I, I think it all relates because we're like, remember this story is dealing with the workers and it's dealing with basically like a religious back story. So you have a lot of people who are dealing with like their worldview, their view of, power their view of whether you show respect to others in a certain way like how you know communication or social relations things like that um, and then what the story does it 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 dumps all of this at Sinclair's feet so he has to figure you know he has the crisis of the workers and then he has the annoyance of the ambassadors and he has to figure out a way like how can I solve this problem like in what way and um, what ends up happening, which this I like the way this is written, because it's like you should have been able to see this happen because Sinclair's done this before. But the way this this episode is written is like, oh, that's really cool. 
Um, mm-hmm. Him and Zento, they go down to the um, they go down to the docks where the workers are striking. Well, f- hold on, let me let me back up. Basically, uh, there is a worker riot, which is awesome. Um, Begarabody gets socked in the jaw, like seeing cops, especially uh, strike breakers, getting socked in the jaw, taking one, <laughs> taking one on the chin, because <laughs> uh, it's like, hey, you're a worker. I mean, I don't care what what your equipment is like you you're still part of the working class yeah you shouldn't don't do that hey hey folks public service announcement wake it up come on babe tell them <laughs> don't break strikes don't cross the picket line it could be hazardous to your health um kind of like oh who was it who who is it drew barrymore was she the one she has the tv show and she was going to try to keep her show going during the writer strike and then the writers was like nah we're not working and then so she cancels her show and those writers were like, we're not coming back to work for you because you decided to try to do the show. The only reason why you didn't is because we weren't there. Not because you didn't, oh. not that you were supporting us. Same thing with Bill Maher. They can all lose their shows and they can go into obscurity forever, especially Bill Maher. That dude's an asshole. He needs to just go away. So that riot happens. Uh, they declare, oh, this is a legal strike. Zento gets authorization from the Senate. And so he's marching down there with security, with Garibaldi, with Sinclair. And he's like, okay, we're invoking the Rush Act. Sinclair, do your job. Oh, okay, okay, okay. What's funny, too, is um, earlier in the episode, Zento's like, no, I've heard about you. You're, you, you let this happen. Like, this is your <laughs> fault, right? So, okay. So what happens is Sinclair... Basically, he he um, he reads the law and he actually understands the law. He can't oppose it. His hands are tied as far as like being able to help the workers like in an indirect way. So he has to get directly involved. So when they invoke the Rush Act, he repeats out loud. It's like, hey, the Rush Act gives me the authority to end this strike by any means necessary. And he's like, do you? Do you um affirm that Zento? Zento's <laughs> like, yes, you yes, do your job. He's like, all right. And so the means expecting him to just be like military person and come in guns blazing. Right, exactly. He thinks people are gonna get shot. Now, so Sinclair, he goes, All right. So my first act is I'm gonna reallocate what was it, like fifty thousand or a million credits. I can't remember like the number. A million and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. A million and a half credits that will go to the dock workers. And then basically he was, he was given into their demands and, mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, we're going to take it from the military budget. We got, we got, we, we got more than we need. And the dock workers are going crazy. And Zento's like this, you know, that's not what we meant. He's like, Hey, you gave me the authority. He's like, be sure before you give somebody a gun, you know, which direction they're going to point it. And I'm like, yes, that is like that is so dope. Like, which also shows kind of the the um, the pitfalls and clumsiness of um, hierarchical authority. When you give somebody all the power, you don't always know what they're going to do with it, and they don't always do the right thing or a good thing. Uh, Sinclair just happens to be a good guy in this case. In this case, so the workers are happy. And they get, you know, they get, they get their demands and they do the whole like, all right, boys, get back to work. And it's like, nothing happened. Nobody died. Nobody got beat up, whatever, whatever. 
to wrap up. And also, the, I'll go ahead. Jakar is not very much. I don't. I don't like how there was just so little thought to the dock worker that passed away. And right. did the people that were on the ships survive like those crashes? No, nah, that dude did died. They live? <laughs> that dude. <So, laughs> At least two people now that are dead, and you're just still so concerned about this flower. Like, what is your religion teaching to where, like, finding this flower is more important than the lives of the person that we're bringing it to you? Oh yeah, Jakar did not care about that fight. That uh, uh, that yeah, yeah, he didn't care. And it's like that's why I was like, it seems so much like show to me. Yeah, And also, like, if it's that important that you're the one that's supposed to be in charge of this routine that you have, shouldn't you have, like, some seeds or something on your own? Like, mm-hmm. why is it that you have no, you didn't consider that this should be a part of what you bring onto the station if it's that daggone important? Like, did it have yeah. to be a freshly picked one? Obviously, it didn't have to be because you wanted Land Londo's one. Or maybe that was because, I don't know. The, there was no reason for him not to have one on the station if it was that important. It they also, already did a whole cultural thing on the ship, on the not keep calling ship, station. station. So <laughs> why didn't you bring up, like, all the things that you would need? Why didn't you explain all of your different how many different ceremonies you had with which ones i don't know i think that was kind of it also it also shows the absurdity of certain types of religion in space right granted they like again they they kind of depict the humans as being more materialist even though there are religious humans and you'll you'll we'll see them uh later in the seat in the later episodes um and and I'll go ahead and spoil this. Franklin has a particular religious belief that we're going to explore in this series. But typically what what is discussed is either secularism or straight up atheism with um, Ivanova and Garibaldi. Garibaldi is a straight up atheist. Like he's very cynical about it too. But none of the religions changed when these species gained space flight. And I find that pretty interesting. So... The human religions didn't change. And remember when they were doing that uh, cultural exchange thing, he was, you know, he was sharing, uh, Sinclair was sharing like all of the human religions. You had Catholics, you had um, Jews, you had Hindu, you had all of that, right? And they were all the same as, you know, they were recognizable as they would be today. And so that means like the religion the religions did not evolve with humans gaining spaceflight. Everybody just kind of like, yep, we're staying who we are, no matter how ridiculous it sounds for us to be doing this in space. And it's the same with the alien religions, too. I think it's the same now. It's yeah. like there were some, there, there are a lot of religious practices that were very relevant 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago. But, like, right now, with the understanding and the resources that we have, a lot of that ain't necessary. Right. Uh, So, a a lot of the religious practices were probably created out of the the ruling bodies trying to get people to comply and using uh, stories and uh, routine from those stories was probably the best way to do that. They did that in uh, Dr. Stone. 
where they taught the kids a song in order to learn all the things that they needed to know to survive. It's an anime. <laughs> Going into anime. It's a sci-fi yeah. anime. But um, yeah, it it made sense for the time, but people are so stuck on the social construct. Like, I, one of them I think of is uh, like homosexuality or LGBTQ plus in general. Yeah. There may have been societies that needed to survive by reproducing. And so they created that as a part of their pantheon. It's not necessary now. We got enough people. <laughs> there are too many people. <laughs> like, uh, humans will survive. There's almost 8 billion of us. It, we're not endangered. So the whole <laughs> thought yeah. process of the right saying well you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply is preposterous we don't need to <laughs> well and that's and that's what i mean like j michael straczynski he he very harshly criticizes religious fundamentalism because it makes no sense like fundamentalism makes no sense even in its own context mm-hmm. like but what it what it does and I think you're right about this. It does offer like a sense of like security for people who are in power and they need their their population, they need their cultures to be under control. They need them to be uh, compliant and obedient. And so they have to be kept in a constant state of fear and also kept in a constant state of hoping for an afterlife so they won't be looking for better in this life. Wake that up. And so, you know, it's 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 very exploitative. There are mm-hmm. there are important like benefits to culture uh, that some religions do offer. And there's a lot of people who debate this as far as like the mythology and the, the, the greater narrative, like the cultural narratives, what people believe about themselves and then like what helps to shape a culture's ethics, all of those things. But in the end, um, fundamentalism is a cancer that will eat itself. And it, <laughs> and it always does. It always does. And it has to find an, an other, an outsider to blame all of its troubles on. And in every single case, it does just that. And that's why we have a lot of the problems with racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-LGBTQ um, hatred. There's, you know, xenophobia. All of those things is because there's there's fundamentalists that have to justify themselves in the face of being irrelevant. And the easiest thing is to blame somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and this permeates throughout culture. So which also helps reveal like the different contradictions. Right. We're, we we criticize wealthy people. Because like, oh, they don't have souls or they, they sold their souls. But then the, the society will reward wealthy people. It's like, well, they are blessed because they're wealthy and they're wealthy because they're blessed. It's like, which is it? Are they going to hell or are they going to heaven? Which which one is it? Like right. <laughs> them screwing right. people over. To, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Right. You have to look up to us, but you can't feel like you can be one of us. Right. So you can't feel, you have to have a moral reason for staying where you are, but at the same time, you you can't, you know, uh, revolt. Right. And then <laughs> it's like that class of people screwing everybody else over is like, oh, it's to build character in you for the next life. It's like, you know what? I might live a long time. I want this life to be good. Right. <laughs> you know, 
right. <laughs> something I, I like to say about religion is like it's not inherently good or bad. It's a tool for you to use. Uh, like um, almost every other time I go live on TikTok, I get somebody in my comments. Oh, you need Jesus and I'm going to pray for you. And uh, do you worship Satan? And I'm like. I I'm talking about sci-fi. I was I could be talking about Lilo and Stitch and how cute Lilo because Stitch is. And um, they on my comments like you need to stop being evil. You need Jesus. And I'm like, just because you're Christian doesn't mean you're right. Like, and then I find it very contradictory. Right. Uh, Jesus is love. Oh, you need the love of Jesus. And I'm like, but you're not being loving, and you're the one who has Jesus. Yeah. Like well. there are plenty of loving Christians out there, but you know some of them ain't. What we may have to do is a side mission to to kind of like have a broader discussion about religion and sci-fi and the different influences and just, you know, just kind of have that conversation because you're right. And the thing is, a lot of a lot of religious fundamentalists and people who are, who otherwise identify as religious don't see themselves as doing bad when they are doing evil. They think they're doing good. <laughs> And and that's mm-hmm. the thing that bo- that bothers me so much is like oh no it's good that children are dying and it's like well how I thought that was an evil thing I thought you guys were like save the children it's like no but not those children you know I was just um, watching a video yeah. about that they were talking about people who do evil things because they feel like it's their duty to do those things right and it's just another day job <laughs> right it like man imagine that arrogance you have to have to believe that god is working through you to murder people mm-hmm. yeah i'm sorry this is getting deep or oh man all right i'm sorry because we're going a little long no, but we're that, gonna keep um, going. yeah 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 i know we're gonna keep going uh we remember that all right on tiktok there was this um christian uh creator who stole Eniko's um jericho song and wrote a christianized version of it and she's getting a ton of attention from it and everybody's calling around like, hey, you stole the song. You stole the song. She's like, I didn't steal the song. The song just came to me while I was cleaning. And it's like, no, you straight up stole that song. Came to you on your phone. <laughs> right. Like you you stole. She appropriated another creator's art and is making herself. She's profiting and making herself famous off of it. And she's deflecting, saying that God wanted her, wanted her, wanted to use her voice to speak through her. To take a demonic song, I don't know how the song is demonic. She still has not explained that a demonic because song because it's not of Jesus. Right. It's not. Talk, it's not praising Jesus. Anything to, for some people like that. If it's not strictly Christian, it's demonic. Right. All right. So we need to uh, we need to get out of here. But um, I wanted to I wanted to see. Uh, so you've been going live on Saturdays. You also have like the Facebook thing going. Uh, is there anything else that we need to know about what's going on in Mel's world, in the rebellion, on the front? I think that's all I'm doing right now. I've been taking it easy. Okay, Not really. As far as marketing, but yeah, um, every Wednesday I'm putting out the Galactic Tea videos. And those it'll be are filler so, videos those are so fun. <laughs> I, I, like That's a wonderful idea. I love those. Um, and yeah, Na- If anyone wants to... Oh, I'm sorry. Naomi Nagata is... Uh, yeah. Sunday, I think you'll really like Naomi. Oh, I have to check it out. Yeah, I'm going to have to show you. And then uh, I might throw some suggestions since we're talking about uh, sci-fi crushes. You might want to check out Gina Torres's, uh Chloe from Firefly. I did videos on both of them. Nice. Oh, yes, that's right. You sure did. 
And if any of our listeners want to suggest something, <clears throat> just go to my uh, my my Facebook or my TikTok and and comment and do a video on this one. Yes. And I am slowly trying to become more productive with our TikTok. Um, I've just had some personal things that I've been uh, taking care of. So um, here pretty shortly, we'll be getting more content out. Also, there's some really cool things happening in video games. Cyberpunk's Phantom Liberty dropped not too long ago, and I completed that uh, expansion, and we got to talk about it at some point on the side mission. Oh, you know what? I have the first game, and Mm -hmm. it was a point that I couldn't get by because I didn't know what to do. Like I technically know what to do, but I don't know physically how to work the controller to do it. Oh, okay. I got you. <laughs> and it yeah. was one of the tutorials. I, I got on like two missions and then there's a tutorial and then I can't get back to the tutorial. Yeah. The t- once you're at the tutorial, you can't go back. It's frustrating. Right. But yeah, we should, we should talk about that. All right. Well, we'll get out of here. Um, this has been a fun episode of, uh, <laughs> at least I hope it was fun. We got kind of, <laughs> we went all over the map. And if you want to continue the conversation offline or away from here, uh, be sure to check us out on TikTok, Instagram. Mm, I'm not on Instagram. Sorry. I'm on TikTok. Yeah, check us out on TikTok and Facebook. You just be talking to me. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And uh, also on all of our streaming platforms. That we're on um, Amazon, Apple, Google. Uh, at the end of the year, Google Podcast is going to go away and it's all going to be YouTube Music. And I got to figure out how that's going to work. Um, or you can have it on our YouTube just in the comments. We want to continue these conversations and keep them going. And we're open to, to hear what you all think. So with that, check us out. I'm Legendary Black Lion. You can find me on all social media. I'm Legendary Black Lion. I am Mel Asylum, also known as Melissa Smith. If you can't find it, uh, you can find me at Mel's Rebellion. This is Sunday, and I'm not available. All right. We'll check. We'll see y'all next time.